On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking with Scott Urquhart from Cable 14's The Hamilton Network about all kinds of stuff from debt to medical-assisted suicide to lockdowns to remote learning, even to spinach. Yes, spinach, the stuff you eat sometimes if you like that kind of thing. Stick around. Today on The Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Just finished doing a TV show. I mean, not the whole show, just a little, a few moments on it. Uh, it's called the Hamilton Network on Cable 14. And one of the co-hosts of that show is a guy by the name of Scott Urquhart, a legendary local broadcaster who is now the co-host. And guess who joins me today on the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio? The one and the same Scott Urquhart. Sir, how are you tonight? Yeah, I'm good. I feel like I just talked to you just moments ago. Well, you know, we did, and and you know, when I say legendary broadcaster, it's funny. I hadn't really, um, I hadn't really meant to to lead in that way, but you know, I read something today, and I don't know if this name rings any bells with you, but I heard that Rick Azar died today. Do you yes. remember Rick Azar? Yes. Now, I I, I was um, when I was a kid, I was in London, so we got Cleveland instead of Buffalo mm. on our television. But yes, I, I know Rick Azar. He is a legend, yes. Well, yeah, anybody around here, a lot of people who grew up around here or in the Southern Ontario area, back in the day before our TV got all splintered and everybody got every channel because of digital and whatever else, we got Buffalo TV. And I think most people remember Eyewitness News 7, oh, Channel sure. 7, with uh, with uh, Irv Weinstein <laughs> and Rick Azar and Tom Joles, Captain, or, uh, Commander Tom. Commander Tom, um, yep. You know, it, it, boy, it's, um, I, look, we'd all love to think that in this world that we can have people who resonate like that, but my goodness, I, I was trying to think about it the other day or when I heard this and I can't think, I mean, maybe it's cause we're young when we have those people that we first see on TV or whatever, but it just doesn't seem that we have that same legendary status now for those kind of people. Well, I, I, I certainly would not include myself in that group by any means. I mean, those guys were on another level altogether. But I think you're right, Scott. I think it's because, uh, perhaps because the, the broadcast world is so splintered that uh, it's not a common bond anymore like it used to be. Um, once upon a time, we all, you know, our parents, they watched the, the news every night. And uh, it came into your house every night. And, you know, you, you kind of grew up with those people. You knew them. That's not necessarily the case anymore. And, and more and more people are going away from uh, newspapers, as you know, and, and broadcast uh, news and, and uh, going to their phones and to di- digital devices to find out what's going on. You know, I, I don't know when the, when the day comes. I don't know when, what the point is we're going to look back at and say that is when that sort of stopped. I mean, I think for a lot of people in Hamilton... And this is not to disparage in any way the people who do great work on CHCH now, but I think there's a lot of people who might say that kind of ended with Dan McLean and Connie Smith and Ken Welsh, that era, mm-hmm. um, maybe even before then. I'm not sure, but it, and it Matt does. Hayes. Don't forget and Matt Hayes. Hayes. Yes, of course, Matt Hayes. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, it's, it, it is just, it, that seems to be so difficult now because, again, it, even when people watch news now, I think it's hard to get them to stick around for the whole hour. It's, and not just because they don't think the newscast is good or not because even there's all that many options. We have so much stuff going on in our life. Who has an Mm -hmm. hour now? You turn on the TV for 10 minutes, get the highlights for the news and off you go. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the people who show up later in the hour, they may not be as familiar as Rick Azar was or whomever else. That's right. And uh, yeah, like, like I say, it used to be kind of a a ritual, a daily ritual. And uh, I think that, era you're right i think that era if it already has not passed is is passing quickly that's a great word ritual because that's exactly what it was it was yeah, that six absolutely. o'clock news was almost sacred that you would uh, my dad you would six o'clock things stopped and you watched the news mm-hmm. every day and you know there's something unfortunate about that um leaving uh because it it compelled us all to be informed um you know that that ritual we all shared in that and we all got uh, basically the same information which is not as you know the case these days and uh it, it kind of we were trained to be informed about stuff 
and now it's kind of like a choice. I can be informed or not be informed, or I might watch this, or I might watch that. I might watch sections of this news or sections of that news, or I might not watch news at all. It It, it is a different era, I think. I might just read tweets and then consider that my educational exactly. source. And, exactly. Uh, now, I'm going to catch you cold on this one, Scott, because okay. I did not give you forewarning of this, so it may be a tough one, but... You know, we talk, um, we, we're starting this conversation talking about Rick Azar and Irv Weinstein and Tom Joles, who were legendary around here, Buffalo News. Um, who would be, is there a TV personality, a TV news personality that, that resonates with you, that you really remember from your childhood or even teen years, that when you, when you think of those years, that's the person or the face or the name that pops out? Gosh. I'd have to think about that. One one broadcaster um, that uh, was in both Hamilton and my hometown of London at one time was Jack Burkhart, who was a, a former anchor here and, and went on to anchor in London, and uh, whose name often was confused with my own whenever I went, oh, you're related <laughs> to Jack? No, no, I'm not. But uh, he kind of pops out. But I think it's really... Um, I think it's really the guys who, who, you know, read the national or CTV uh, news during the, that era that, you know. Yeah. Nolton Nash, Barbara from, you yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And one other name, and, and we got to take a break here. One other name that pops up and, and it's not even the face that you think of, but from my sort of teenage years, cause I grew up in Toronto Mark Daly, the voice of City TV mm-hmm. for so many years. That guy, his voice was on everything. It was on the movie ads, and it was on the City TV ads, and it was doing the yeah. news. And yeah, and a that great guy, great oh, voice. oh yeah, and that guy. You hear that voice, and it's like it's one of those things that can take you back to a moment just by hearing that voice for a moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. unfortunately gone now. Um, also, from Atlanta, Georgia, oddly enough, but yes, gone now, and uh, a great broadcaster. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott, we had the announcement today that Hamilton is going to be going back as of Monday morning back into the gray zone. So we're going back into lockdown again. And this is just a day and a half or two days after Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the local medical officer of health, said, I don't think we really need to go back into the gray zone. And, you know, look, I'm not blaming, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not saying she's wrong. I'm not saying that the province is wrong, but does this, have we reached a point when this whole thing has become confusing to the point that a lot of people are now saying, I just don't get it at all. I mean, I get it. I, I understand I'm no doctor, but I just don't get this at all. I don't really know where we're going. I think absolutely we have. And I, I there was a, a little chart in the spec, uh, I think today, uh, showing or yesterday, showing what all the different colors meant. And basically, uh, if you go through that, it uh, doesn't really change all that much from level to level. Stores are open all the way through pretty much. And, uh, you know, the the government's handling of this, um, the provincial government's handling of this has been just horrid. There has been no consistent messaging. There has been, you know, uh, Doug Ford is like uh, Janice. He's Premier Janice. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Uh, On one side, he's saying, oh, another lockdown would be disastrous. And on the other side, he's saying, yeah, we better be really, really careful. This is a dangerous time. Well, which is it, you know? Um, well, I'll throw something at you with that. And, and it's an interesting point because I read something from, and I, I wish I knew his name. I, I don't have it in front of me, but he was a former, um, military, I don't know, sergeant. He was like some high ranking mil- whose, whose background in the Canadian military was in dealing with crises situations and stuff. And he has said several months ago, the mistake that we, Canada, Ontario, all the provinces have made is making this a, a a situation that is being put in the hands of doctors. Not that we should ignore the doctors, but this is a this pandemic. We if you're these are not politicians. These are not people who are used to massive operations for hand. We need to take the advice of doctors, but politicians then need to make the decisions based on the best advice themselves, and not always defer and say, "Well, the doctor said this, so therefore." Because we're getting doctors all over the place who are clearly giving different information, which then the politicians follow seemingly blindly. Uh, I think 
the point there is about leadership. And I think it's exactly right. Uh, and I, I think politics has played a role in this as well. Um, no government wants to be stuck with the hot potato of having blown this. And so uh, they've constantly, uh, it's trickle-down theory. I mean, uh, the, the government said the provinces will handle it. The provinces said the local health boards will handle it. Uh, the health boards are, of course, beholden to the province. So they are hesitant to make any decisions that's going to blow back on them uh, politically or otherwise. But the province pretty much abrogated its responsibility by handing it off to a local authority when really you need someone in charge. You need somebody to, as you say, take the information, make a decision and, and stick to it. And that just has not happened, um, not just here in Ontario, but particularly here in Ontario. Well, I, I would, no, I, I mean, look, I, I would have loved to have seen, and I don't want to be looking, I don't want to be sounding like I'm a, you know, Monday morning quarterback because, you know, as these things have happened, I, I understand this has been a moving target and it's something we're not familiar with. And, and so there's been a lot of stuff to deal with, but I, I would have been, I think, happier if we had either done one of two things, had a national plan that the, that was going to be done across the country to deal with this, which was like right from the get go, we're going to lock down the airports. We're going to lock down the borders. We're going to kind of do what New Zealand did perhaps, yep. or say, you know what, because this is going to be an on the ground thing, we're going to let each municipality handle this as they see fit to handle this. But when you have three levels of government, each seeming to come up with their own idea and conflict with each other, that's where you start getting into the problem. I think. Well, I think, to some extent, you're right. But my feeling is if you're just handed off to the municipalities, they're not all going to work in, in the same ways. Um, and then until you have every municipality saying, yes, this is what we need to do, uh, the virus will just continue circulating. I mean, if, if one municipality locks down and they're very tight and the uh, municipality, you know, 40 kilometers away doesn't, uh, chances are you're not going to stop any kind of a pandemic. And it really does, in a situation like this, come down to you need some some top-down authority to say, this is what we're doing. And while we're talking about that, it should have been in place, not uh, on the fly as it's happening now, but uh, we should have been talking about this uh, a year ago. Um, we didn't. We just we sat here and twiddled our thumbs for months on end, knowing that eventually a vaccine was coming and we were going to have to distribute it and did nothing about it. Yeah. And, and we got to go to break here, but the, the, um, the issue, you know, as I say, with taking only the advice of the doctors, and I'm not arguing that we should have ignored doctors, No, but you do have this, yeah, absolutely you should not have, but you do have this endless conflict that is always going to be there between we have to keep the economy going because that's also a problem if we let it crumble and we have the health thing, and how do we do that? Well, if you just pass it off, doctors will always deal with the health stuff, and the politicians will always deal with the economy stuff, and then you end up butting heads as opposed to a decision maker who has to say, you know what, we got to look at this as a whole. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had the Ontario budget this week. And we know that by the end of this year, we're going to be $450 billion in debt in Ontario, 1.2 or 3 nationally with deficits still in place. So that debt is going to be rising and rising. And what we were talking about, and you suggested on the show, hey, we can pick up this conversation on the air. And I said, that is a great idea. Let us do that. Is not the issue to me of the fact that we have debt because we've always had debt or almost always had debt. To me, the thing that's driving me nuts about this is the kind of cavalier attitude we hear towards it, that it's it's not a big problem, it's not a big deal. And I think it is a big deal. I, I, I understand that we have it, but I think it's a really big deal and not something that we should be treating very lightly to just keep piling it on. Well, I, I agree with you there, but I think we look at the uh, debt differently for sure, Scott. And... Um, we, we got into this mess when uh, around the Reagan era, I mean, historically, when all of a sudden the gurus uh, in Washington said, well, you know what? The deficit doesn't matter. Deficits don't matter. And so we kept running higher and higher and higher deficits, not just here, 
but around the world. And uh, that led us to the World Monetary Fund and uh, the World Bank and institutions like that, which helped to stabilize the world economy, but also exact a toll. And the toll for Canada was we lost um, the Bank of Canada to some extent. Uh, we used to, in Canada, borrow from the Bank of Canada, borrow from ourselves and bet on ourselves and pay for our national infrastructure projects that way. Now we're borrowing international money from international banks. And of course, you have to pay interest on that. And that interest is what's choking us. Having said that, however, you've got to look at the picture of the United States is $28 trillion in debt. That debt will never be repaid in a billion lifetimes. And it's that way around the world. In the last recession in 2008, every single Canadian bank was bankrupt. They were underwater. The Canadian government had to bail them out. And that's been done more than once. So basically, we've cooked the books. And if we know the books are cooked, why are we sitting around here going, oh, the debt, the debt, the debt? We can start to think about different ways of organizing our finances, our economies, Capitalism 2.0, I think, is what we need to look at now, because what we've got right now isn't working for anybody. Well, so to uh, to your point, first of all, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with one particular thing. When you said it goes back to Reagan, it might even go before then, but this is not a, to me, this is not a political argument because the, the, the parties that come into power and say, we want to spend, oh, they spend. But the parties oh, that come into power and say, we want to cut, they spend. Nobody cuts. It, like as soon as you come into power, I don't care who you are. There's almost no historical precedent now for someone coming into power and actually doing what they're saying. So this is not a picking a fight with one no, philosophy no, or one pol- political side. Everybody is guilty of this. But right now in Ontario, at least at the end of this year, we'll be spending about one and a half billion dollars a month just to service the interest, which is just, you think of the programs and the infrastructure and the things that you could do in this province with that kind of money. And it's staggering. I mean, I know our LRT has gone up in price since it started, but that would basically be an LRT a month across this province that you could build for what we are just paying to service this debt. And Scott, your point is right. It's, it's, we're never going to get out of this. But the idea that we just keep heaping more debt and keep being, as I keep using the word cavalier and saying, well, it doesn't matter. It's just debt. There is a generation coming. It may be our kids. It might be our grandkids. It might be their grandkids. But someone is going to end up finding, getting to a point where they find we've just run out of money. We can't service the debt. And then what? Well, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Scott. Um, this is the problem with with. As I say, we've gotten into uh, an international uh, banking sort of, um, you know, milieu where, where we borrow and, and trade uh, with each other, and um, we have to pay the interest on debt that is not their, our own. When we borrowed from ourselves uh, at the Bank of Canada, we charged interest, but we paid interest to ourselves. Um, and, and, you know, once upon a time, Canada savings bonds and even Ontario savings bonds, for that matter, uh, help to pay for the infrastructure and the things we need in this country. And they returned a reasonable, uh, you know, return on, on investment, uh, secure investment for those who wanted to retire. Now, that's nobody buys Canada savings bonds anymore because they're pretty much worthless. Um, you know, 1% on whatever. Um, that's why I say we've got to start looking at this whole thing differently and how we how we finance this, because these needs are not going to go away. In fact, they're getting more and more um, difficult to, to meet every single day. And I'm not just talking about rebuilding home highways and bridges and affordable housing or anything like that, but just in maintaining um, a reasonable standard of society. Is becoming so expensive. It that, is. It is. God, nobody. But knows. somebody along the way, and, and this is my argument, someone along the way, I, I think is going to have to come in and say, you know what? 
we do have these essentials that we have to do. We have to be able to uh, help people who are unemployed or can't be employed. We have to be able to look after our medical system and our education. But you know what? There's a lot of other things here. We'd love to have them, but maybe we have to say, you now, we're going to either privatize them or, or user fees or more things like that, that we then, because we just, Scott, as much as I love all these things or most of them, we just don't have the money for all of the things that we want to spend government money on now. We just don't have the money. Well, I'm very wary of privatization. Um, I mean, just look at the long-term care homes. Uh, that's, you know, look at how they were privatized. Most of them were privatized and where we are today. If you don't want to look there, look at uh, once upon a time, Canada had its own national pharmaceutical company that produced vaccines for the world. That was privatized and slowly sold off in bits and pieces. So we lost something that we really could have used today, but nobody saw any, uh, you know, what's ever going to happen? When are we going to have a pandemic? And so um, it was privatized so that uh, profits could be made by a small percentage of people. And eventually we lost that resource. So I'm wary of privatization. I'm not saying saying it's it's evil, but I'm wary of it. We got to run. I, and, and, you know, there are things I am wary about too, but one of the things I'm wary about is the day when we can't afford even the necessities because of the stuff we have to pay for. And then what? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. And Scott, earlier this week, we had Paul Bennett on, who's a education consultant. And we were talking about the reports that are coming out that Ontario is exploring the idea of Having, even when COVID is gone, when the pandemic is over, having remote learning somehow, not full-time remote learning, I don't think anyone has suggested that, but that it will be infused or involved somehow into the curriculum or it, it will stick around in some form. You like the idea or you not like the idea? Well, I mean, I think it's inevitable. I, I don't think there's any way we could escape that. That's just evolution. Um, you know, we, we, we're not in a one-room schoolhouse with chalk and slate and boards anymore. I mean, that's long gone, right? So, yes, technologies are going to change, and they're going to change the nature of education. I think the big question here um, is how to do it right, how to do it Mm. so that it actually benefits and improves the education and the educational experience, um, as opposed to, let's just find a way that we can cut teachers and staff and school boards and, you know, things like that. And I think that's why the unions, quite frankly, are cranky about this. I think to say it lightly is they're worried this means, you know, if we can have, instead of a class of 25 kids in a class, we can have 200 in a one online class and there's fewer teachers, 10 teachers we can cut. Um, I, I would not be in favor of that. One thing I would be in favor of though, that uh, I don't know that this is even something being considered would be the idea of having an online. Um, I don't even know how you describe this and I don't know how you would do this. There are kids who have to miss school because they have some illness that, you know, may not be crippling, but they're away for a few days. They've got chicken pox or they've got something else, you know, something they can't be in class. You don't want them to fall way behind. So let's say you have an online province-wide grade nine math teacher so that if you can't be in class for that day you can drop in on that one and still get some teaching i i don't know how it could be done but i think there are positives that it can be used for but to your point as long as it's not abused and just used as something to try and dump a bunch of teachers and get rid of a bunch of teachers well that's it i mean if they're serious about this if they're serious about uh, moving forward and and introducing some form of of learning Everybody has to get involved. This cannot be a directive from the unions. It cannot be a directive from the province. Uh, It cannot be a directive from parents. There has to be common ground, and everybody has to buy into this on some level, or it's doomed to failure from the start. The other thing, and and Paul Bennett mentioned this, and I, I hadn't considered this, but I thought it was a great idea. He goes, you know, there's courses that there's not enough interest in certain schools for a teacher to be there to teach it. You may have only one or two kids in a certain school that want to take course X. Well, if you still want to take that course and there's an online possibility, you could take the course from a different school and just jump in for that particular 
course and take all the others in class. I mean, again, I think there are ways that this can be a very useful tool if it's sure. handled correctly. Yeah, sure. And that's, that's it. If handled correctly. And if we're going to do it, we're going to have to uh, pull together um, all the parties involved, all the stakeholders and start planning what this has looked like. How are we going to introduce it? How is it going to work? How is it ultimately going to benefit us rather than hurt us? And uh, I don't hear any even talk about that kind of planning yet. Okay, let me throw one at you here. Would you, if you were in charge, if you were the education minister, would you say, look, we are going to have some sort of remote learning to the unions. So wrap your head around it. There will be some kind of remote learning. And let's go back to what was positioned, I think, about a year ago when they said, I think it was, what, two classes over your high school year that were, or your high school career, I can't remember. Anyway, it was a small number. Here, unions, you're going to have to teach two classes every year remotely. We're going to let you decide because you think that you can, you have good ideas. That's very good. We are going to leave it to you to determine how to do this best. Do you think, I mean, I don't know that they would ever pass that off, but do you think the unions would accept that? responsibility accept that or would they say no no that's not our job well this is this is the problem with politics um politics is not always based on the common good Uh, politics is is more often than not based on self-interest and philosophy and um that's where it gets really sticky sometimes I mean, if we could all just say, yeah, you know what, uh, this is going to happen. We can all see that and, you know, drop the, the stance of we're going to do this or we're going to do that or you can't do this, or you can't do that. And like I say, start planning for how it's going to be introduced and what the impacts are going to be and who it's going to affect and how, you know, but I, I, I that's that's utopian. I don't think, I don't think anybody's going to be willing to sit down at the table and go through that exercise. I I don't think any government is going to hand off responsibility for this willingly. And I'm not entirely sure, as I say, the unions would want that even if they did, although I could be surprised. Maybe they would say, no, we've got all the good ideas and we would happily do that. I'd love to see, we got to run. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see what they would come up with. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. In the last week or two, the government has put forward the idea that the medical assistance in dying is now not just going to be for those who are imminently on the path to obvious death, but it could be for other people for other reasons. And a suggestion was raised by a columnist, and I thought it was a fascinating idea. If we're no longer restricting this to those who are, as I say, on that path to death already. Do we really need to have doctors involved at all? Or could we just have people who are clinicians who are administering the chemicals, the whatever else, to allow people to have that medical assistance in dying or just assistance in dying then? Do we need doctors involved now? Oh, sure. Just dump that question on me, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) I read it and I thought it was a fascinating idea because if, if you're no longer having to have a, um, a, a, a doctor to say this person has cancer, this person has a diagnosis, they're not going to live, this person, whatever, if it's entirely your choice with none of the other conditions, why do we need to have a doctor involved? Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, you got to start asking, is this ethical? Is this moral? I mean, it's it's a ph- philosophical argument, and then you get into, well, do I believe in, in a god? Is do I have a religion? Do I care? Am I an atheist and I don't care? Um, am I a humanist? Am I you know like the the thorns involved in a, a situation like that, a decision like that, are so numerous and so sharp. Uh, I'm not sure how you'd ever hack your way through that. Um, Which is true, which is true, because all those questions, I think, are very valid depending on your philosophy. But I I would suggest that once the government has said that this is legal and you can do it, we've essentially said those questions no longer matter. I mean, individually, yes, but as a country, we've decided that those questions have been answered somehow and those are no longer relative. 
or relevant? I think they'll always be relevant. Um, I mean, look at at how many young kids are despondent and they don't have the life experience to have the perspective to say, this too shall pass. We'll get by this. I mean, if it's just like, okay, if you want to, you know, check out, go ahead, check out. How many people are we going to have who in a moment of despair uh, are going to take that option when, you know, they, they have a productive life ahead of them? What kind of toll is that going to take on us as a society? You know, like I say, there's a million questions involved in this, and I don't think anybody can untie that knot. And I look, I, I'm in full agreement with you because this is something that I have been maybe in the minority. Uh, I may be in the minority, but it's something that I've been exceedingly concerned about since we opened this door in the first place. Because I believe with these things, once you open the door a crack, it's going to get pushed open and open and open. And my concern now, Scott, is we've said originally, it's only for people who are diagnosed, they are going to be dying. Now we've said, well, you know, if you're in, I can't remember the exact wording, but you, you can choose it if you've got great discomfort or whatever. My great concern is that the next thing is going to go to court that we're going to allow children to make this decision. And that's a truly terrifying idea for the reasons you just said. Um, but you know what? So maybe do we need a physician involved though? I mean, I would, I would argue based on what you just said, and I agree, a psychologist or psychiatrist perhaps should be involved in this decision, but I don't know that we need a doctor, a medical doctor just to go there and administer the needle. Yeah. I, I don't know about that. I don't know enough about the, uh, uh the medical niceties or, or, you know, uh, requirements to, to give you any kind of an answer on that. Um, but yeah, I, you mentioned are we going to have kids being able to make decisions? Doesn't even it's not even just kids. I mean, there are young, you know, adults in their, in their twenties and thirties who, like I said, they hit that moment of despondency and despair. They're adults; they can make the decision. I think the toll is the potential toll on society is is devastating. I agree. I agree. And there's one other area that we haven't even gone into yet, but I, I think it's not unrealistic. And again, people can come back to me and say, you're totally off your rocker. I don't believe I am. And that is if you are now someone who is the the person in charge, the the power of attorney or the guardian of someone with a severe disability, and you say, yes, but I'm the guardian, this person, I think they would prefer not to live. Now we're into, now, how you know, if that goes to court, how do we untangle that one? If we're allowing everyone else to make the decision, how do we say, well, that person suddenly is the only one whose rights, they don't have the right to do this. I, I, I This is why I've been fearful and upset about this from the beginning, because it's not, whether you agree with the concept that someone with terminal cancer should have the right to do this, it's the, it's the slippery slope that follows after through the courts that I get very concerned about. Yeah, and I understand that. And like I say, uh, I, I think the ethical considerations uh, alone should give us pause to really think about uh, where that line is going to be drawn and it needs to be drawn firmly uh, when we get there. 100% agreement. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott, I saw something today on Twitter that I have now adopted as my all-time favorite thing and I think I may have to get a poster or a t-shirt or something made of this. I want to read it to you, and I want to get your comment on this. Many people don't know this, but it's possible to read something you don't agree with on the internet and simply move on with your life. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. And We I don't think often that, think so, but it's true. I think we need a lot more of that in our lives. You know, uh, we were uh, talking yesterday and uh, Mike Fortune, my co-host on, on THN, uh, you know, you and I are sometimes at different ends of the polls. He and I are sometimes at different ends of the polls. It never ends up in uh, a shouting match. Um, there is a possible way to, uh, to have a different opinion and not think it's the only opinion. And uh, if something infuriates you so much that you feel compelled uh, to spend, you know, hours on the internet trying to defend your position man take a breath take a breath move on move on 
my colleague Steve Milton at the Spectator has pointed out very wisely. I mean, he's he's a he's a man who has some wisdom built in there in his little tiny body. Yeah. Um, he that no one has ever won a debate on Twitter, never. and he's exactly right. You never you, you get into these screaming matches and shouting matches, and nobody ever wins. And so I just I, I I've never understood the need that if you see something that bothers you it is incumbent upon you to, in all capital letters, scream at someone, call them a name, compare them to Hitler, and then demand that they be taken off Twitter or whatever else. It's it's always been weird to me, Scott, that exactly what you said, why is it not possible to hear someone's opinion that is different and rather than scream at them, say, huh, I wonder if now I, I should think at least to be able to explain my position. It's challenged me to think, why do I believe what I believe? That to me should be what happens. Yeah. And I agree with you. I, I think it's always a good thing to, uh, you know, to challenge yourself to say, okay, well, maybe I am wrong about this. What about, you know, considering something else, but to me, um, and it's not just Twitter. I think social media in general is a closed loop and there, there is no, escaping it because, you know, someone presents an opinion, uh, someone else refutes that opinion, which, you know, in turn gets somebody else to refute the refutation and around and around and around it goes. Um, There is no end. So really you're chasing your tail on social media when you get into one of these arguments. Um, I don't know. Is it because we have this inherent need to be right about everything all the time? Probably. Probably. I think that's part of it for sure. And I think that there is also a, in our modern culture, and I mean, when I say modern culture, I mean like really modern culture. I think that there is a, 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 a belief in a lot of corners that you have a right to never be offended. That that is a, a human right somehow built into our charter of rights, which it is not. But you have this belief that you can go through life never being offended. And anyone who does offend you, therefore, must be wrong and must be silenced. As they opposed to... evil. Evil uh, if offend you, yes. That's right. And not even incorrect. Like, even if someone says something that I vigorously disagree with, you're right. It's not just that they are wrong. That wrongness must stem from a place of evil. Yeah. Yeah. It, and that's a really scary thing. It's to be uh, just... You know, so, so extreme. Uh, it, it's hard to, to understand. And like you say, the, the right not to be offended. Well, good luck with that. Um, you know, everybody's going to be offended by, by something at some point. There's just, that's, that's welcome to the human race or welcome to the world, you know. Um, you're not going to get through your life without that happening. Uh, get over it. That's all I can say. Yeah. And, and, and the, the most difficult part about this now is I think there's an awful lot of the time, whether you're on social media or not, that you say something that you have absolutely no intention of being offensive or malicious or argumentative or anything. And all of a sudden someone takes something out of what you said. And then you're like, well, I, I didn't mean that at all. Like I, I didn't go online and say something intentionally to be racist or sexist or anything else. I said something and someone has extracted a nugget out of that. And now I'm defensive because I've been accused of something. That's like, wait a second. That's not where that came from, but that's what happens. Well, let me ask you something, Scott. Do you think that we have created uh, a society of hypersensitive human beings Yes. And if we have, <laughs> how did we do that? Where did we go wrong? Oh, well, um, I mean, look, it, it's not the entire answer for sure. But I do believe there's something to that, that thing we've talked about over the years about the, you know, everybody gets a trophy, um, you know, in kids sports. And, and we, and look, I don't even blame the generation that we're talking about now because we are the parents who created that generation. So it's our fault, but we made it so that we told kids all the time, you will never be disappointed. You have a right to always be equal with everybody, whether you win or lose or put the effort in or not, you are, that's your right to be exactly equal. 
and anyone who says or does something to you. And how many times have we heard these stories about a kid that does something wrong and then mom or dad marches down to school and screams at the teacher instead of correcting the kid? We've created this thing. And this is not everybody, by the way, but we've created this thing where I think we've taught an awful lot of kids, you're never wrong. And so if something is bothering you, it must be the other person who is wrong because it can't possibly be you who is wrong. That may be a, that may be a good part of it. I think there's also, um, we have really, really smudged the line between rights and responsibilities to the point that uh, nobody really understands what the difference is. Um, and, and we've also over the years created uh, a more and more and more and more competitive society where if you're not winning, you're losing, you know, um, there is no, there is no gray, not like there used to be. It's either a or B. And I, I think a combination of all three of those things, maybe, maybe why we're in the situation we're in. And I think there's probably more, I mean, look, I don't think you and I have resolved this, but I think there's more elements to this as well, but, but no, you're right. And and we now have, you know, uh, just going back in, in recent months, um, let's use, for example, the, the debate, the discussion, the argument, whatever you want to call it over the statues of Sir John A. Macdonald. All right. When people say, well, you know, he did some things in the past with the residential schools and blah, blah. All right. You know what? I, I'm not, no one's going to argue that the past is the past and there are things in the past that we may have trouble with, but what ends up happening and using this just as one example is if you then defend him saying, yeah, but you know, I, I think that we can still honor the man who created the country while we accept at the same time or not accept, but acknowledge that there are flies in that ointment and that we, you know, we don't love everything you will in some corners get screamed at because it's an absolute. We, we now work in a, in a, in a area of absolutes as well, Scott, that if in any way you defend anything related to anything that may have a problem, you are the problem and you are a racist or you are this, or you are that. And again, I think we we've lost, as you just described, we've lost a lot of the ability to have a sense of nuance and describe something that is not absolute here or absolute there. Yeah, it, it's easy to, to find fault with anything or anyone. I mean, um, you know, you look at, at somebody like Gandhi, who has been revered for decades. Well, Gandhi was uh, a blatant misogynist and uh, just a terrible um, abuser of women. Uh, and, and yet, you know, OK, but he did some good things, too. Um, yeah, it's... It has become extreme, and you're right. There is there is no there is no nuance. There's no shade of gray anymore. It's either A or B, and I think that that's not reality. That's not the world. Well, who can live up to that standard? Exactly. Yeah, I can't. I know that. Look, there is not a person alive who does not have a skeleton in their closet, and likely a whole lot more than that. But we're at a place now and, you know, where, where we get to where if you do anything that offends anybody, apparently it seems there is, especially if you're on a large platform, if you're on a large stage, you know, just this week we talked about the, I think it was this week or maybe it was last week, the, um, the woman from, she was the young new editor of, I think it's Teen Vogue magazine, who back when she was 17 years old, made some comments on Twitter that were racist, but she was 17 years old and she's now late twenties. And yet she had to lose her job because someone pulled out these tweets. And I'm like, wait a second. She's apologized profusely for them. She said that her entire attitude has changed. Surely there's room in our society for forgiveness and second chances. But now I wonder if that's even the case. Aren't you glad we didn't have social media when we were young, Scott? I mean, I I don't know whether I ever would have worked, period. Well, <laughs> you know? I mean, things from, from your youth when you're stupid and uninformed and, you know, you, you haven't formed any kind of a moral compass or code and they're coming back and destroy your life, that, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. We don't let kids under 18 vote. 
Um, we don't let kids under 18 go to prison for things they've done as an adult. And, and the reason is because we've correctly determined that your brain has not formed by that point. And I don't think you could, I don't think things that happened back then should be held against you for the rest of your life because you did stupid stuff. We all did stupid stuff. I can tell you stories, Scott, of, of abject stupidity that we did. Now, thankfully, the things that I did that were colossally stupid didn't lead to criminal charges. There were nothing that was so over the top, mm-hmm. but you know, there were stupid things that could have gone a wrong way. Oh, for sure. Would you have wanted that to be held against you for the rest of your life forever, even though they didn't go badly that someone says, you know what you did this back when you were 17, therefore you must now be, no, that that's, no. that's, that's called growing up. Yeah. I uh, am. And- and yes, I mean, kids, especially teenagers, are going to make some really dumb decisions. And, uh, you know, like I say, they, they haven't got a frame of reference of life experience uh, to make these decisions. They're, um, they're feeling their way along. There's no handbook for life. You know, uh, we're all going to stumble through it. And you're right, when we stumble badly, should that be hung, you know, all over your head for the rest of your life? No, it is. It isn't fair, and I don't know really at this point what we could do with it because we we've been conditioned to hold everything to such a, uh, a you know absolute standard that there doesn't seem to be a lot of room anymore uh, for forgiveness. No, and even if you're an adult who did something stupid. Uh, you know, like uh, if you do something that's criminal, we're not talking about that. The criminal yeah. is criminal. You can deal yeah. with that separately, but you know, and, and where this goes really in a funny direction, not funny, ha ha, but funny, ironic way is it's often, t- not often, it's, it's occasionally the people who scream the loudest about these things that end up being caught. And then all of a sudden it's a yes, but it's like, well, no, no, this, the lesson here should be, let's have some understanding and some forgiveness for people who have done something that maybe you regret, but have expressed remorse for and say, you know, we've all done these things. We don't have to b- blast you out of society because of a mistake. Cause we've all done these things and we're not going to come down on, unless it is criminal or repetitive or constant or so egregious and so over the top that it's something else. But you know, mistakes are mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you make a good point, Scott. I think um, uh, the uh, issue of, of repetitiveness, if that's a pattern of your behavior, that's a problem and that's a different story. Um, if you've made the mistake once or twice, okay, hopefully you've learned from that and you've changed your behavior and you've moved on. But if, if it's a, a lifelong pattern, we might need to have a deeper discussion about that. Let me, uh, we only have a minute or two left here. Um, let me just throw this at you as we uh, change to one last thing. Today is National Spinach Day, which uh, spinach is not on my top 10 list of foods that I enjoy <laughs> eating. I don't know if it is for years. What is the, I was going to ask you this at the beginning, but we got to it at the end. What is the food that you just, Scott, that you cannot stand? What would be the thing if Maria put something in front of you that you would say, I'm sorry, I love you. You're a great cook. I love everything you do for me, but you've put this in front of me. I will not eat this. This is disgusting. What is that food? Calves liver. Can't, can't gag it. Very, very specific. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have, I literally have a physical reaction to it. What, uh, if it goes into my mouth, I gag immediately. I just cannot eat it. Is this, is this a large part of your past that calves liver has been a, a regular I, I, occurring meal? I think I think it does come from my childhood. Although I have overcome things from my childhood that I hated and I love now. Like I do like spinach and I do like Brussels sprouts, but liver, nope, that's a constant. I just can't do it. I I don't know who likes liver. That, that's one of the ones. As a kid, my mom used to make me liver, yeah. and I liked it back then. I rolled in oats and then fried up, yeah. and somehow I liked it. And now the thought of it, like you, it makes me almost just talking about it. I'm almost gagging. Yeah. Well, I do uh, know a few, like Matt Hayes. Matt Matt loves liver, and I go, "Are you kidding me?" But no, I mean there are people out there. That's for sure. 
So what you're saying is that Matt doesn't actually tan. That color that he has is from some sort of reaction to the liver that he eats. Yeah, some sort of chemical in there. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. It it's an imbalance. It's turning his skin dark. <laughs> um, no, I, I, you know what? Uh, I talked. Who was it I was talking to? I was talking to someone the other day, a while back. And we were talking about foods we hated. And we, we ended up crossing paths. On we, we were walking in alignment. We had a lot of things we you know weren't our favorites. But when it came to the things that we didn't want to eat, one of them was was zucchini that's a food that is just to me that is just disgusting zucchini bleh. and the other one that i will not touch and i just cannot stand it and everyone swears by it or a lot of people do is tofu oh yeah tofu there will be no tofu uh, yeah i'm not a big fan of tofu myself um you know uh yeah there are things out there but i i have learned like zucchini that's fine with me but i and, that, and that's what's uh, that's interesting about us all. You know, we all have individual tastes, and some things are appealing to some, and some are not to others. Um, I know my my daughter's boyfriend right now. He's uh, he's one of those guys who's just very very wary of any kind of seafood because we don't live anywhere near the sea. You know, <laughs> and, and and I love seafood, but you know, to each their own, right? Yeah, I'm the only one in the family. The rest of the family has a motto that says, if it's from the sea, it's not for me, which um, <laughs> I'm working on training them, but I'm getting nowhere on that one. Uh, Scott Urquhart, you can see him on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday on the Hamilton Network, which you can find on Cable 14. Uh, he and Mike Fortune co-hosting a great show. Uh, Scott, listen, always appreciate having you on here. Thanks for the time today. Oh, thank you, Scott. And, and thanks for uh, pumping my tires so nicely. It's, uh, I'm good for a month at least. <laughs> there you go. Well, no, you know what? Scott does a fantastic. Thanks for doing this, Scott. That is no problem um, at all. Uh, Scott Urquhart, once again, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday on Cable 14 for the Hamilton Network. And, you know, one of the interesting things Scott said, and I will reiterate because we were just talking about this, this thing, that this meme that I found online, you know, it is possible to see something that is online and not argue. You can just go on to the next page and get on with your life. It is possible. You know, Scott and I disagree on a lot of things. We disagree philosophically, politically, we disagree on a lot of things. It's possible, it is possible to have a discussion with someone and not have to decide that they are the spawn of evil. It's possible that you can disagree and still have a discussion. I always appreciate that about Scott, that we can disagree vehemently on some things but you disagree, and then at the end of the day, you shake hands. Well, not during COVID. You knock elbows, whatever. But you 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 go your own way, and you know what? It's all good. That, that to me, is how it should go more than just the screaming all the time. But that's just me. That's just him. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.